Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Really great, brother. Um, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the, the pastors here, and um, I think as uh, a couple have said already today, we're uh, really glad you guys are with us. If it's your first time or second time here, especially, want to say uh, welcome to you. Uh, thanks for being here. And um, we, uh, like uh, throughout the, the centuries, we, we value highly the Word of God. We value hearing from Him through the Bible. And so we value uh, centralizing that in our, in our gatherings and, and also kind of mini gatherings throughout the week too. Not the only time we read the Bible together, but uh, we value uh, preaching God's word and hearing together what he has to say to us. Uh, we've been doing that through the lens of a book called Zechariah in the Old Testament, which is the second to last book of the Old Testament right before Malachi or Malachi, the Italian prophet. My old friend used to kind of joke about that. Uh, it's not Malachi. It's a, it's a, it's a key. It's a CH uh, sound, but anyway. Um, if that helps to think about it that way. Uh, right before the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the, the New Testament. If you want to turn there on your phones or uh, the books the, or the Bibles in front of you, that'd be great. I'll have this on screen here too in, in just a second. Uh, but today we're going to finish up the series. So we've been in this book for 14 weeks. Uh, today is the 14th of 14 weeks in this book. Uh, it's always kind of bittersweet to end these, end these series, uh, but we're also looking forward uh, to going on to some open mic, we call them, or um, kind of uh, pastor or elder's choice sermons uh, throughout the whole summer until the weekend after Labor Day, which uh, we are strongly, le- strongly leaning towards preaching Galatians at that time, too, for those of you. A lot of you have asked about this because you like to think ahead and just wonder, so uh, that is uh, 99% sure where we're, where we're headed after that, um, to give you guys a heads up there. Uh, but today, we are going to look at uh, this theme. Actually, first of all, to summarize the book, this is how we've been kind of our working definition, working summary of the book now these past few weeks. Uh, Zechariah, if you're new to the, the book or Uh, the Bible just in general. Zechariah is one of the Old Testament prophets. Prophets are those who speak kind of from and for God uh, to, uh, at at the tail end of the Old Testament, kind of in context with what's happening in Israel and Judah. And so this book has um, uh, been a series of apocalyptic visions and prophetic oracles, or truth statements, speakings from God, about Jesus Christ and other New Testament realities ahead of time from the vantage point of Israel's return from Babylonian exile in 520 BC. So there's a lot of narrative and story around that that some of you are aware of. If you're not, don't worry about it. I'll try to summarize some of that. But just understand this is real-time history, real-time grace being expressed to real-time sinners like us. God is calling people back to himself. People have been apart from him, they've been separated from him, and God has been at work bringing, bringing them back to him, not based on their moral effort or inherent sense of righteousness, but just based on his love for them. That's the the narrative story. The prophetic kind of counterpart to this is that Zechariah and other prophets, uh, there are many, Zechariah is one of them, is speaking in context with them returning to God or maybe geographically or physically back to the promised land. He's been basically exploring prophetically how God was going to truly return people to himself forever, spiritually. It's been cyclical at this point, happening over and over and over again. If you know Israel's story, you know what I'm talking about. It's happened over and over and over again, this process of exile to return, gracious return, but then people screw up again. And they're cast away from God's presence, but God, remaining committed to them, pursues them, pursues them, brings them back to himself and this gracious and good land. He's provided for them, and he's protected them and fought their enemies, and he does this over and over again, but it's a cycle. This is kind of the last one, but as we're going to see today, it's not fully over yet. And so really when we talk about exploring prophetically and spiritually and symbolically what it really means to return to God, the answer time and time again has been Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
That's what Zechariah is seeing prophetically. That's what he's saying prophetically or seeing apocalyptically, dreaming about, the visions he's getting. Everything he's seeing is somehow, whether direct or indirect, whether explicit or implicit, whether straight road or windy road, about Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. That's how we get back to God. This book has been about returning, and the, the true way, biblically speaking, the true way we get back is through the bloodied man on the cross that we just sang about, uh, God sacrificing himself for us. So all other returns find their meaning in that event, the Christ event. Other returns don't mean anything apart from it. It's just noise. It's story. Nothing to do with us. But if they're tied with Christ, if there's a real people in history who are being shown real grace, and if these stories are tied with Christ, it means everything for us. This book is about us. As the New Testament says, we, Gentile and Jew, are true Israel now. We are the true people of God who is really calling back to himself every single day around the world in all tribes, tongues, languages, and contexts through the church who is his people. So with that said, let me, let me read all of this today. We're in the last whole chapter. It's a longer chapter, 21 verses, so we're just going to read it all and make a few comments. As a lot, as we say every week, um, we're not going to touch on everything. But talk to us if you want to talk more about it. This is a very difficult passage. I said every week it's a difficult passage. It's difficult because it's difficult to interpret, but it's also difficult thematically, uh, as uh, you'll see as we read, and we'll talk about some of those things. But let's read it here in full to begin. We'll start in um, verse 1. The theme here is destroying and rebuilding again. Uh, Again, it's it's cyclical. Remember, Israel has already come back to the land, and this is the prophecy. It's going to happen again. So have that in mind and ask the question, where are the themes of Christ in this book? That's the question we're going to ultimately uh, answer and land with uh, today, as we should always ask that question. All right, verse 1. Let's start here in uh, chapter 14, verse 1, the end of the book. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out in exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. 
Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Boots. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Boots. And on that day there shall be inscribed in the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall be no, no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. All right, clear as mud, right? So here we go. Um, just to summarize this book in a, a sentence or two here, this is how I'd summar, or summarize the chapter rather in a couple of sentences. This is what I think is going on. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Jerusalem is going to go through some pretty horrific stuff, but then those who attack her will go through worse. So I think there's a, uh, a hermeneutical, or means, that means interpretational, but also kind of an existential lesson here, uh, and that is good things that fail to last drive the story forward to something even better. So that could be a biblical principle or a, a life principle for us. Good things that fail to last drive the story forward to something even better. Remember, when this was prophesied, this was prophesied right after Israel returns to the land, after they spent 70 years in exile in, in Babylon in that land there. And so the point to all of this is, when, when you end a book like this, and think, try to think as, as though you're right in that first context historically, when you've returned, you've experienced a magnificent return to God and to his land. You're hearing about exile happen again. The city being attacked again. Spoils being taken from them again. And then another return after, after that. The point of this then is to say that their return historically in 520 BC is not the ultimate return. This is true in our lives as well. Good things in our lives that fade tell us they're not ultimate. Whether the fade is qualitative or an actual kind of, of disappearance. Hebrews 4.8 in the New Testament has some helpful language here. When it talks about this, this is a New Testament book kind of interpreting an Old Testament story and uses language here that's helpful with uh, our theme in Zechariah, but just different story. But, but he says, the author does, if, if Joshua had given Israel rest, which is synonymous with entering the land the first time, when they that promised land out of Egypt, if Joshua had truly entered that land with him, truly brought them back to God, truly given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So if Israel had truly experienced a return from God, we can say, using that same language here in Zechariah's terms, if Israel had truly experienced a return to God on every level, 
why did Zechariah speak of another day later on when it would happen again? See how the Bible thinks about these things? These former things are, they might be good things, but because another one's talked about in the future, it implies the former things are becoming obsolete. They're not ultimate. If they were, they'd be the last of them. So if this was the final return, the ultimate thing God was wanting, when he's bringing a a small nation of people back from, from the east, from Babylon, to be in his land again, why would Zechariah speak of another one coming later on? And, and the answer to that is, the first one's not ultimate. Good, but not great. And this is how it drives the story forward. Again, we can experience these kind of things in our lives as well. Whatever it is, you could list anything, whether it's work or season change or just happiness with different kinds of things in our life. Good things. A meal, a meal time at lunch. We get hungry again at dinner. Things are good, but they don't last. And when the Bible talks about these things, it talks about them in a kind of a failure kind of way. Good things but not saving kind of things or ultimate kinds of of things. And so this is how the story gets driven forward to Christ. Remember, this is the last chapter of the book as well. This is the last chapter, almost the very end of the Old Testament. A magnificent return, but God's saying, yeah, pretty amazing. But actually, I have something much bigger in mind that relates to it. It's going to be like it, but much more cosmic, much more international, and ultimately, much more about me and final and my son, who will truly return people to God on every level imaginable, and and truly actually experience exile as well. We'll talk about that today. We've already in this series how Christ experienced exile from his own father as God's son for us. And when he did it, when he experienced it, he ends it for his people forever. Otherwise, the cycle would continue. When God enters into it to fully bear exile, fully bear separation from God as a human being himself, then if we trust in him, we actually have hope for what Zechariah 14 is really looking at. And that is a true end of the whole exile return motif and cycle that has just littered the pages of the Old Testament up until this point. All right, so that's a summary here. We'll talk more about this. Uh, What I want to do next is talk about this big theme here of God bringing calamity, especially in the first few verses you see this, bringing calamity in order to then bring an end to it. Uh, so I highlight a couple of verses here to help you see this and to remind you. The passage, the prophecy basically begins, Zechariah again speaking God's words here. He says, for I will gather the nations, God will, I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken. Then in verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. So God will be the one to, to instigate uh, Jerusalem's uh, siege, Jerusalem's suffering, and yet he'll be the one to also destroy it. Common motif in the Bible. It's a very, actually one of the more difficult and hardest truths to grasp about God and evil and suffering in his providence. Though God is not responsible for evil, he is in control. He's sovereign over it and he uses it for greater good purposes. And it's far too easy to let human logic take over, nullifying the paradox with this issue and oversimplifying it maybe by saying things like the devil alone is behind all evil in the world. And there's some truth to that. He's behind it. Uh, But it's more complicated. We're responsible for the evil in the world. I'm responsible for the evil in the world and, and in my life. And again, even God himself, as passages like this indicate, even here prophetically and poetically, that God, though the essence of goodness, not a speck of evil in him, 
can use darkness to accentuate the light, even though we're responsible for the darkness. A few places you see this elsewhere in the Bible, this theme come up, Old and New Testament. In Genesis 50, Joseph says this to his brothers at the end of the book. You guys, some of you guys know this story. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant that evil for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. John 9 in, in the New Testament, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Just to make sure that's clear. He was born blind so that God might display his works in his life. That's why. It wasn't because of sin. He was born that way so that God's works might be displayed in his life. That's what Jesus is saying. Then Romans 8 as well. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And all things include bad things. It doesn't say just good things. If you're in Christ, if you're one of his children then everything in your life, good and bad, God is at work through those things, and he's working all of them out together for the good. All things include bad things. And even if no apparent good comes from what happens to us, and that's true with some evils in our life, and I'm talking about objective evil, so things, so in ways we're harmed, in ways we're sinned against, even if no apparent good comes from what happens to us, he is able and willing to bring it to an end. That's what this is saying. He gathers evil in order to destroy it for his glory and our joy in that. Revelation 16 in the New Testament pictures this beautifully, how it's another apocalypse where this time John is getting his visions of what's happening in heaven and there are angels pouring out God's bowls upon the earth and each bowl kind of consists of something and they're explained. One of the bowls poured out actually incites demonic armies to gather against God and God's people, the church, ultimately in order that God might speak a word and destroy them in a single breath. So again, it's God who incites the demonic armies themselves to gather against him. It's his bowl that's being poured out that incites the demons to be gathered before him to wage war, and the kings of the earth, those who are not in Christ, to wage war against Jesus and his people, Therefore, so God could destroy. You see that? God's doing the inciting, the gathering of the evil so that he might destroy it. It's the same theme in Revelation as we see in the early parts of Zechariah 14. So that we can affirm and use other language here in Zechariah 14, our sin, this is where it's looking, all the evil ever done to you guys that you've been, that you've taken the brunt of. Demons themselves, But again, all of our sin, to borrow from Zechariah 14, will have their eyes rot in their sockets. This is where the the graphicness of the imagery, I think, can change into solace. Uh, For weak and wounded and abused and sinned against and tempted and deceived people like us. Do you fit in those categories? Then then all of a sudden it's good news that God wants to rot uh, characters, things, eyes in their sockets. Uh, God wants to war in that way against the things that have harmed you in life. So it's good news. And actually in Revelation you see this. You see the church rejoice in heaven 
when God is destroying evil. So God goes after evil with that type of, of veracity. But the, the implications here in our life are, are myriad. And, and this is a topic we could spend all day on. I, I want to get to Christ here and show he fulfills this theme. I'm going to do that in just a second. I want to touch on this, though. We can't not touch on it. This is an important piece to when we're talking about who God is, what he's like. None of us are born with this perfect depiction of that. You know, and we're not reborn as Christians. That first day when you and I, when many of you were in the room were Christians, when you were saved, you had this kind of perfect drop down from heaven theology of God. None of us do. I don't. None of us have that even today. None of us ever will perfectly. So we have to let God's word itself inform us and just presuppose that, that none of us have a perfect view of that, that all of us have twisted views, incomplete at least, views of who he is. So the implications here are, are many, and, and that's actually the first one I want to mention, is there is a lot that we don't know. There's so much we don't know. So much of our life is a mystery in terms of how the pieces fit together. Our lives are a tapestry of incredibly terrible things and incredibly beautiful things and a whole bunch of things in the middle that God weaves together perfectly for our glory, for his glory and our joy. And, and, I, and, I, and here's something I know, I know about myself, so I'm just going to say I know this about you too because I, I know it's true for me and we're all in the same boat here. I know that all of you have a view of God that's too small. Mine is. Everyone's is. And, and I think that this idea of God being that much in control, over, even over evil, uh, that we should let this shatter categories and presuppositions and incomplete theologies of who he is. It's okay if it bothers you. You know, it, it, to think that everything you ever learn about God should be super easy to receive if you are not him. In fact, if you, if you and I have an inclination to rebel against him in his ways, we should expect to hear things about him that bother us. Theology won't always be comfortable. And so let this shatter those categories. Let it inform your understanding of him and in his ways. That's the first thing. Second, relatedly, if all of this, and if God doesn't change, and if he's always at work for our good, then the evils in our life as his children are not punishment. Please hear that. If all this is true, and God always works all things together for our good, then the evils in our life as his children are not punishment, but part of a greater story of divine redemption. And the third piece is grace. Israel did not deserve to have their calamity brought to an end. Yet again we're seeing this. Uh, but God did it, and God promised it's going to happen. Exile's going to happen again, somehow, whatever that means. And, but he's going to come and fight against the enemies that bring about that exile again, yet again, and again, and again. It's the same for us. It's really easy to focus on the bad here and forget the part about God battling the bad for us. This doctrine is much harder to grasp if we think we're good people who deserve better. But if we really embrace our wickedness, uh, this becomes much easier to swallow and much easier to actually see the deeply embedded but very much there good news within this doctrine of God. All right, with all that said, though, that's not really what this is all about. 
I want, I want to spend some time there, but that's not what this is really all about. This is what it's about. This is who it's about. It's about God's Son. Jesus is always there, and here he's the ultimate fulfillment of this theme. Calamity, then salvation. Crucifixion, then resurrection. So it's not just about Israel's historical experiences though in the intertestamental, that period between the Old and New Testaments. Um, we'll talk more about that. It is kind of about that. But nor is it primarily about us. It's very easy to read ourselves into things like this too quickly. Not that we never should, but too quickly. This, like all prophecies, are primarily about Jesus, who from this vantage point in history is yet to come, from our vantage point in history, who has come, who fulfills all these things. So what I mean by that is this. Remember, Jerusalem is suffering because of her sin. And we should ask as the reader again, how does the cycle end? As I've already been saying, the cycle ends through Christ. It ends when Jesus eventually suffers for the world's sin. So in that way, I think he is like the true, and I'll call him the true city of God. He's the true Jerusalem as depicted here in Zechariah 14. Destroyed, crucified, then rebuilt or resurrected. And remember, Jesus has a precedent in his life and ministry of talking about himself in architectural terms in this manner. In John 2, he says, uh, you will see this temple destroyed, and then I will rebuild it in three days, speaking of his body, the temple inside Jerusalem. You will, you will destroy this temple, or see, see this temple destroyed, in three days I will raise it up again. He wasn't talking about the physical building temple, he's talking about his body being the ultimate temple. It's the same with the city, here, in Zechariah 14. Jerusalem will be destroyed and then rebuilt, in the same way, later, Jesus, the fulfillment of all themes, motifs, types, pictures, events, buildings, seasons, characters, books, laws, psalms, will come to complete uh, what these things say in part. So a few places we see this then in, in Zechariah and the prophets as it anticipates Christ uh, is uh, as, as follows. First, in Zechariah 14, it says the nations will be gathered against the city. Like later, the Gentiles, or nations, which is actually interesting because it's the same Greek word, would one day be gathered against Jesus and partially responsible for crucifying him. Even Judah, uh, in Zechariah 14, it says, even Judah will fight Jerusalem, which is really interesting, but I think very important thing to see in, in this prophecy is that it's not just surrounding nations, it's actually Jews themselves who would fight at Jerusalem. Uh, and that, that itself is a foreshadowing of how the Jews themselves would seek the ultimate Jerusalem's, Jesus's, destruction and ensure his crucifixion. The theme of wagging heads I've mentioned a couple times in passing in this series, but I want to spend a couple extra minutes on it. This is really important, especially if it's new to you, to understand, is that the city itself, Jerusalem, when it was initially destroyed, is pictured as something that people wag their heads at in disgust and derision. That the, the wagging heads is a, um, a word directly from the, the Bible. The same idea is seen in Psalm 22 when David, King David, as a suffering king, is wagged at. And we see that theme in Christ as well, who is the ultimate David and the ultimate city of God, who is passed by and wagged at in derision when he's being crucified. So the three places we see this is Lamentations 2. All who passed along the way, they hissed, they wagged their heads at the city, the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? 
Psalm 22, a Psalm of David, which is a prophecy of Christ in many ways. Some of you guys know that. I won't go to that today. But, but all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And then Matthew 27, all those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Oh, the, the thick irony being laid across the pages of that, uh, of that story. Uh, he is doing it. But note the theme. And doesn't the, the, uh, the, the derision, the mockery of Matthew 27 sound a lot like Lamentations 2? Point is, Cities are mocked and derided and wagged at. David himself, as uh, the, 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 pre, the prefigurement of Christ in so many ways, is wagged at. And then Jesus himself is as, uh, as well. And we see that in Zechariah 14 too. Exile as well. Like half the city in Zechariah 14 would go into exile. So did Jesus experience exile from God for us that we may not have to anymore. The weather gets messed up in Zechariah 14 uh, where on that day, there will be no light, just like the sun went out from uh, noon to 3 p.m., uh, those last few hours of Jesus' time on the cross when he hung there. And then finally, living water. In Zechariah 14, on that day, it says, living water will pour forth from Jerusalem. Like Jesus himself talked about how living water will pour forth from the hearts of those who believe in him and who himself served as, we talked about this last week, as a fountain who poured forth water for the forgiveness of sins, Zechariah 13.1. And was also pierced and poured forth water from his side when he, uh, when he died. Here's what this is saying. Jesus is the true Jerusalem. He's the true city of God. The ultimate expression of God using evil for good. And I think the center of the Christian response, defense-wise, to the problem of evil. You know, if we ask the question, can God use evil for good? If you're a Christian, you have to say yes if you believe that the cross was to your benefit. Did God intend the cross? Did Jesus intend to die? Was it the most evil thing that ever happened? Yes, yes, and yes. Did good come from it for you, your salvation? See, we have to have a category for this. We don't have to fully understand it. But clearly at the cross, God intends the worst of things the worst thing that's ever happened, the greatest of sufferings, worst of evils, greatest of injustices. So we can rail at injustices of the world, but the greatest of injustices was when the God of creation sent his son to die among criminals shamefully and naked. Greatest of injustices. Used all of that to save us from hell and from separation from him and from our depressed state of not knowing who we are. See, the greatest of evils brought about the greatest of goods. It's like the bookend of the, of, the, of the issue. Can God use evil for good? Of course he can. He used the cross. And Jesus went through, again, much, much worse for us, in looking at Zechariah 14, than what is pictured there. Not to minimize that, but he went through much worse for us than what's pictured in the earlier parts of today's prophecy. Much worse. God took on more suffering, more of a judgment for sin, though he was perfect, more darkness, and more evil than anything Israel or we have or ever will experience. 
And, and one question, and I'll, I'll just pose this. This is, this is for all of you, whether you're Christian or not, uh, but, but especially part of our witness. Peter talked about testimony um, before, too. We, we can talk about this for our lives. I'll just ask the question. Can any other God claim to experience fully what humans experience, as our God can? Can any other God any other, of any other religion, any other holy book, claim to experience fully what humans experience? Can any other God claim to suffer like they suffered? Can any other God claim to empathize fully with everything you've been through? In every way you've, you've been sinned against, all the harm you've faced, all the pain. To take on all their burdens, sins, and judgments that they might live. See, there's no principle here in this passage of suffer, then you will live. Which is what basically every other religion says in so many words. Suffer and then you will live. Rather, the gospel is God will suffer for you. And then you will live. That's the gospel. And, and like Joe is getting on his testimony and so those songs we sang, it's, it's, uh, it's been woven together beautifully this morning. It's not about us. Not about our suffering. Even though we suffer. Not to minimize it, but to say it's not the ultimate. And the principle here is not suffer to live. The principle is Jesus, the ultimate Jerusalem, will come. But see, think about, you know, a 6th century, early 6th century B.C. Jew who's experiencing this return, hearing these prophecies, suffering themselves, experiencing some kind of physical dimension to exile and return, but then having God, cyclically, but then having God say, I will experience it. And when I experience it, I will end it. I will suffer. I will experience separation from myself, which is possible with a, a trinity, a triune God, not a Unitarian God, but a Trinitarian one. I will experience separation from myself so that you won't ever have to again. When Jesus was on the cross, he was mocked and wagged at and killed only to serve as a fountain of life to nourish us with his living water. He would one day, from Zechariah's vantage point, manipulate others' evil intent and use it for good. Like the completely good and sovereign God he is. This is who God is. And this is, this is what all other returns thematically of the Bible and in history point to. Jesus' body, his bloody body, that's how he fixes the dark chasm of sin and death that keep us from, from our creator. And, and, and again, I, I love how Zechariah ends with this. This is the ending prophecy. There's nothing after what we just read today. And hardly anything else after this in the Old Testament until we read Matthew 1, the genealogy of Christ. When he's born into the world, the Savior the one to come to truly experience what Jerusalem is being prophesied about here. The theme of exile and return find its goal in, in him. So our response then, and, and the passage talks about this a little bit, actually prophesies about it in a future tense, which is present tense for us, and future tense. I think there is, maybe some of you thought this when I read it or asked the question, is that referring to the second coming of Jesus, or is that the first advent, or all of it together, and I think it's both and. I think there is some dimension to what's being prophesied there that's still yet future for us, but I think that card gets way overplayed. I, I think that it has a lot more to do with the, uh, the first advent, or it means, which means arrival or coming of Christ into the world, 
and his crucifixion and resurrection than it does just the second coming. But just as an aside there, if that's what you're wondering. But it talks about it as, as a yet future, future tense thing. But, but there's two things. This is, this is first, a little bit more of an aside here, but let all of this, all the stuff we talked about today, whether it's pain or suffering or evil in your life, the world, whether you read it in the Bible, let it point you to the cross where that theme finds its fulfillment. Jesus, our, our true destroyed but then rebuilt Jerusalem, has come. Crucified for our sins, destroyed, then raised up, rebuilt for our justification or our acquittal, our right standing before God, and, and again, us with him. So that's the first thing. And, and bask, again, let that inform how you, what you think of when you think of God. He is way more in control of your life than you think. And this is good news. Way more in control. Way more. See, if, if, God, gets, if God gets bigger, we can, take more, we can find more rest in that. But we, we, can, we fight against it. I do. I want to make God much smaller than he is all the time. Uh, but if, if it's just the devil alone, if we oversimplify the idea of why there's evil in the world um, and how exactly God's going to redeem that, God gets really small and our joy goes with it, or flees with it. But if, if God gets bigger, if God really is able to use everything that's going on in the world somehow, somehow, for good, in our lives and in the world, and certainly in the Bible as we read it, saw that today, then again, he's able to do that in our life as well, in your guy's life. He really is. Let him get as big as he wants to get in your life, and just presuppose that your view of him is way too small. It is. It, it is for me. My view of God's way too small. Let the Bible inform who he is. Not what you feel is right. Not what someone else told you one day, but never, was never founded in the Bible. Let the Bible dictate what, who he is. He's, he's much better than you think, too. So you're, you're not going to get the end of that journey and think, oh, God's worse than I thought. It's always going to be better. Because what, what you and I think about him now is not good enough, either. It's not big enough, but it's also not good enough. So let the scriptures define how in control and how good, how much he's tirelessly working. All night when you and I are asleep, he's hard at work, working everything out in our lives for our good. Do you believe that? I invite you to, as the Bible does, if you don't. The second thing here in terms of our response is right from the passage towards the end, which is worship. I'll read 16 again. It says, then... Everyone who survives, all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths, if you aren't aware, is a, was a Jewish festival, an annual one, talked about in Leviticus 23, I think for the first time, if not one of the major times it's talked about. The Feast of Booths commemorated when Israel came up out of Egypt and lived in tents or booths in the desert for a number of years before entering the promised land. And so they, they would set up these tents on an annual basis to kind of remember, hey, remember when our, we did this or when our forefathers did? They'd remember that God was really good, bringing them up out of slavery. Again, very similar theme to what's going on here contextually. It's just earlier in Israel's story. So prophetically what this is saying is, remember the Exodus. And as we talk about, if you guys have been around for a while, you know we talk a lot about this because the Bible does. There are two exoduses in the Bible. There's the first one that I just mentioned, and the second one that's spiritual that occurs when sinners like us, Jew and Gentile, come to Christ and say, set me free from slavery to sin. 
Jesus talks in these terms. The book of Hebrews does. It's all over. We have experienced, if you're in Christ, a new spiritual cosmic end times exodus. The first one points to that latter one. So in that sense, when you remember Christ and Him crucified, it's like you're experiencing, celebrating, remembering your own exodus, which is kind of like celebrating the Feast of Booths. That's what we do. It's not a New Testament command. Never says, Jesus never says, actually do this. But he does say, remember me. And when he says, remember me, he's basically saying, keep the Feast of Booths spiritually. Just like he's saying with the Sabbath, when you rest in me, you're kind of keeping the Sabbath without keeping the Sabbath on a law basis. You're doing it spiritually. Same with this. So what this is saying, and, the, and don't, uh, it, it's easy for all of us to miss the obvious here. We see the idea of worship. This, this is the Bible saying this. This is what's, God's going to do this amazing thing by himself being like the city, being destroyed, rebuilt, crucified and raised. Then in, on the heels of that, on the flip side of that, people will worship him. That's the response. And it's not always this obvious thing where you think, well, yeah, of course that's happening. Of course I've done that. This is, this is foresight. God's helping Zechariah to see this ahead of time. The question for us, I think, is on this side of the cross is, are we living in a way that's kind of consistent with this prophecy? Are our lives full of actual time taken out of our day and week, and we're doing this here, but elsewhere too, to thank and worship and commemorate? Because Feast of Booze here is about commemoration. Communion's about that. Um, we'll talk more about that next week. Commemoration, deliverance, worship. And, and like Israel did on basically all of their festivals, they ate a ton of food. So I think that, that's why Christians are called, that's why the center of the New Testament is God saying, eat. There's lots for us to abstain from as Christians, for sure, don't get me wrong. But the center of the New Testament is God not saying abstain, but gorge yourself on the gospel, which is my body and my blood. Eat. In other words, take what I have to give. If the center, of a, if the center was abstaining, we could confuse the whole idea with saying, like Peter did in John 13, Jesus, I'll, I'll, you should never wash my feet. I should wash yours. You're, you're the teacher. But Jesus says, no, that the essence of the gospel, like we said last week, is, um, is, is Jesus serving us, not us serving, not us serving him. So that's why the center is here. Jesus is like a, at the table like a, um, like a waiter saying, here's your food. Take, eat. And in a few hours, I'm going to be betrayed, arrested, you know, go through the horrific, nightmarish things for you. And when I do, Look upon me on the cross. Believe that I'm dying there for your sins to take away all fears of future exile from God. It's horrific because your sins are, are horrific. It's beautiful because my love for you is that big. It's both. And I am that in control of the devil's schemes. I'm that over it. He's responsible, but I'm over it. Intending what he's intending for evil, I'm intending it for good. Apply that to your life. Apply that to your idea of what the gospel is first. Apply that to the way that you think about uh, your life and how you read these things into the scriptures and world events. With that, let me pray. God, thank you so much for 
this book. Uh, it's been a great 14 weeks. Thank you for writing it, speaking it into the Bible in the first place that we might have it to have a bit of a fresh angle on old truths. There are things in Zechariah that are said that are not said in the New Testament. Even though they point there, we get aspects of what's really happening uh, at, on the cross, what's really happening through Jesus' ministry. We get this apocalyptically and symbolically in ways that are kind of unique. So thank you for, for giving that to us. Uh, whether it's for the first time or hundredth, we, we've read this in this room. I guess there's probably both. Um, God, thank you uh, for your love. Thank you for speaking into really difficult things. Uh, there's nothing that's untouchable for you. Nothing's untouchable. Uh, you talk about heavy things. You enter into those heavy things. You take on those heavy things yourself. Ultimately, our sin and death itself, to, that you might overwhelm them for us. And God, we, we end this book, and the book ends by looking ahead, but, but we say, God, Jesus, you are that ultimate city. You're the ultimate destroyed, then raised. The ultimate crucified, then resurrected. The ultimate taking on evil, but then creating good out of that theme that there is in the whole Bible and in all of history. Uh, Jesus, it's all about you. Uh, you. Thank you for dying for us, that we might be saved by grace, not by works. That's what Zechariah is, is all about. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.